0: You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Well, they say a week is a long time in politics, and it's certainly been a rollercoaster few days in Northern Ireland politics. Having quit on Monday, former First Minister Arlene Foster was enjoying her lunch in Belfast yesterday while the man who ousted her as leader of the DUP, Edwin Puths, faced a party revolt. And he ended up last night announcing he quit as leader. Besides all that, today's North-South Ministerial Council meeting has been postponed at the request of the Northern side. Our Northern editor, Vincent Kearney, joins us from Belfast this morning. Uh, Vincent, just how bad is the disarray in the DUP this morning?
1: quite astounding on on you, I mean I said yesterday I've been covering politics up here for about 30 years and I've never witnessed anything quite le- like this uh, a, a couple of occasions yesterday, yesterday we, we had to pinch ourselves, the journalists who were covering this, um, because we just couldn't believe what was unfolding and to give you some kind of you know, a demonstration of just ho- how bad the situation is f- for Edmund Puts, when he became leader of the party he, he won the vote by 19 votes to 17, so we all knew that the party w- was deeply divided uh, and split yesterday morning before going into the assembly to nominate his close friend, Paul Given to be First Minister. Um, assembly members met privately, uh, along with MPs and some of the peers, um, members of the House of Lords, to decide whether or not he should go ahead and nominate Paul Given because there was such outrage at the British government announcement that it would bring in Irish language legisla- legislation. That was seen as a as a surrender to Sinn Féin, who demanded such a move. Um, we understand that in that meeting, he lost the vote by 26 votes to eight. Now, that gives you some kind of a a sense of the swing against Edwin Poots. And then he went into a meeting of party officers last night. There are 11 party officers in the DUP, including Edwin Poots. Now, unfortunately for him, that room was packed with people who were set against him. The the other party officers included Geoffrey Donaldson. The man who had uh, he had beaten in the leadership contest by just two votes and um, sammy wilson and gregory campbell two mps who were opposed to him it also included diane dawes who he had sacked as economy minister peter weir who he had sacked as education minister so he picked a fight in the wrong room and we were told that yesterday there was a sense that he was going to lose that possibly by 10 votes to one That's how uh, that that's uh, the level of anger and opposition there was to him, and my understanding was yesterday he was simply given an an ultimatum. He said, "Look, you can resign yourself." or the party officers were going to declare that they had no confidence in them. They were going to potentially go to a vote of no confidence. And they, they counted the numbers during the day and were told that the, the large number of, of um, DUP MLAs in the assembly and the MPs would have voted against him, Possibly something like that margin of 26 to 8. So what what a swing in just a, a matter of a few weeks. He gone from a narrow lead to the vast majority of the elected members of the DUP saying they no longer, had any confidence in his leadership. Quite astonishing.
0: And what about the position of the new First Minister and the fact that the North-South Ministerial Council meeting is not happening today at the request of the Northern Side? The,
1: the position of Paul what will, will cause a fair bit of concern in, in Dublin and London because this potentially leads to, to more instability. My understanding is that Paul, had given uh, even if he had wanted to go to that North South Ministerial meeting today, my understanding is that the party officers instructed him. He was not going to go uh, because many of them wanted to cut North South relations uh, as part of their campaign against the North Iron Protocol. Uh, and they believe that going to that meeting today would have been um, political, electoral suicide for them going forward. So Paul Given was not going to go. Now, the problem for the party is that they, they actually can't force Paul Given to stand down. He can only remove, be removed in one of two ways. Firstly, Michel O'Neill steps down as Deputy First Minister, and that would automatically force him out of office as well. Or secondly, Paul Given himself resigns. Now, that would once again trigger a seven-day process for the executive uh, to get things back together again, for Sinn Féin and the DUP to agree to go back into government again. And there is a concern, certainly, uh, among other parties in the Assembly, and a concern in Dublin and London, that Paul Given may well be put in a position where he resigns. And that triggers that seven day countdown clock again. Now if that happens, uh, the new DUP leader, who is widely uh, expected to be Geoffrey Donaldson, is likely to press the British government for some kind of concessions in the way Sinn Féin pressed for concessions on Irish language legislation and if those concessions aren't made the DDP at this stage may not nominate a first minister and that would lead to an election. So there's a a lot at stake here. All eyes are on Paul Gibbon because the problem for him is at the moment, he's a lame duck first minister. Um, The majority of his own party members yesterday voted saying it was the wrong time to nominate him. Um, The person who nominated him, his good friend, his political ally, Edmund Poots, is stepping down as party leader. He finds himself isolated and the problem for him is if he continues, um, he could be Become the face of opposition for Lourdes. They could they, they target him with all their criticism and, and all their blame for what's going wrong, Stormont. So, yesterday he described as the proudest moment of his life. Uh, he had a huge smile on his face, he had a spring in his step, delighted to be, to be made First Minister. And he's woken up at the this morning to a nightmare.
0: Northern editor Vincent Kearney, thank you for that. Um- From Cornwall to Brussels, the world's G7 leaders
2: have moved to the Belgian capital for a meeting of NATO countries. Meetings between US President Joe Biden with Russia's leaders will also take place this week. We'll talk to our London correspondent Sean Whelan in a few minutes. But first, Sean has been listening in to President Biden's news conference in which he attempted to put the past behind him and reset America's image for the world after Trump.
3: Everyone at the table understood and understands both the seriousness and the challenges that we are up against, and the responsibility of our proud democracies to step up and deliver for the rest of the world.
4: President Biden kept stressing the democratic values he
3: says underpins all the G7 objectives he listed. One, delivering vaccines and ending the pandemic. Two, driving substantial, inclusive economic recovery around the world. Three, in fueling infrastructure development in places that most badly need it. And four, in fighting climate change. The only way we're going to meet uh, the global threats that we're is by working together and uh, with our partners and our allies. America is back at the table. The repudiation
4: of his predecessor's policies continues today in Brussels at the NATO summit,
3: an organization Donald Trump disparaged. Remember what happened in 9-11? We were attacked. Immediately, NATO supported us. NATO supported us. NATO went till we got bin Laden. NATO was part of the process. And I want them to know, unlike whether they, they doubt it, that we believe NATO and Section 5 is a sacred obligation. On Wednesday, he's meeting
4: Russian President Vladimir Putin. And once again, he barely concealed his
3: disdain for the Russia policy of the Trump White House. We're not looking for conflict. We are looking to resolve those actions which we think are inconsistent with international norms. Number one, number two, where we can work together, we may be able to do that in terms of some strategic doctrine that that may be able to be worked together. We're ready to do it. There may be other areas. There's even talk there may be the ability to work together on climate. So the bottom line is that I think the best way to deal with this is for he and I to meet, he and I to have our discussion. I I know you. Don't doubt that I'll be very straightforward (laughs) with him about our concerns, but I don't want to get into uh, being diverted by uh, did they shake hands, how far did they talk, who talked the most, and the rest. He can say what he said the meeting was about, and I will say what I think the meeting was about. There had been no
4: mention of China at all at the past three G7 summits. That changed
3: yesterday. G7 explicitly agreed to call out human rights abuses in Xinjiang and in Hong Kong explicitly two to coordinate a common strategy to deal with China non-market policies that undermine competition they've agreed and that's underway now how to do that three to take serious actions against forced labor uh, in solar agriculture and the garment industries because that's where it's happening and they've agreed we will do that to launch uh, what I said earlier I, I I really feel very strongly I propose that we have a a democratic alternative to uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, to build back better, Uh, and uh, they've agreed to that, and that's underway as the details of that. We agreed that we put together a committee to do that. And then it was back to to democratic values. I think we're in a contest, not with China per se, but a contest with autocrats, autocratic governments around the world, as whether or not democracies can compete with them in a rapidly changing 21st century. And I think how we act and whether we pull together as democracies is going to uh, determine whether our grandkids look back 15 years now and say, did they step up? Are democracies as relevant and as powerful as they have been?
2: U.S. President Joe Biden, Sean Whelan joins us now. Sean, listening to that, it's very clear he's trying to frame um, the the post-pandemic world as a struggle, really, isn't he, between democracies and autocracies?
4: Yes, and uh, it's not just the post-pandemic world, it's the post-Trump world, because uh, over the last four years, there has been a, a lot of discord in the Western world. G7 summits like this uh, have been disrupted. I mean, the the Canadian one became a fiasco because Donald Trump wouldn't sign up to the final communique. And it was a pretty bland document as well from what we gather. Uh, And in France two years ago, uh, everybody was walking on eggshells because they were all afraid of upsetting Donald Trump and having another fiasco at the G7. Now uh, we have a president in the White House once again who wants to engage uh, in the wider world but also take Fairly firm lines against uh, China in particular, uh, but also against Russia. And of course, uh, President Biden is having that summit meeting with President Vladimir Putin in Geneva on Wednesday. So he wanted to uh, set out his stall to some extent there about how he wants to have relations with Russia, not seeking conflict in both cases in China and Russia, but being quite firm with them as well and uh, asserting that all of his policies and by extension, those of the wider G7 uh, and presumably other allies who want to fall in behind that would be based on democratic values and that I think is going to be the theme of this uh, Biden presidency certainly for the foreseeable future and uh, what a contrast it has been uh, to the Trump uh, administration where there were no conclusions previously Mm -hmm.
2: about China and precious little about Russia as well. But Sean, is there a dilemma for the G7? Can they agree whether China in particular is a partner, a competitor or a security threat?
4: In the case of the European Union, they agree on all three of those things. They see China as a strategic partner. Uh, on certain issues. Climate change being the most notable one. Everybody on the planet has an interest in cooperating on that one. Uh, the Americans feel the same way about it. Competitors, yes, on, on certainly on commercial grounds, but also on things like uh, this Belt and Road initiative. And we saw this coming out again, uh, uh, President Biden claiming the credit for it, of a democratic Uh, environmentally friendly uh, alternative to the Belt and Road, providing money for developing countries to build their infrastructure. So you're seeing uh, competition there commercially and in aid terms, but also the question of being a challenger. uh, And we're seeing the uh, very large-scale military buildup of China over the past couple of decades, particularly in its naval power uh, in the South China Sea and the Pacific areas that America traditionally regarded as being its sphere of influence. So there is quite uh, a difficult, some would say dangerous situation building up in the Pacific uh, in uh, naval and military terms, uh, and that will be... um, You know, address the Americans in particular want to try and harness the power of their friends and allies and like minded countries around the world. And we've seen that also uh, in the technological challenges and even in things like the supply chains, uh, most critically, the PPE shortage that we saw at the start of the pandemic.
2: Okay, Sean, thank you very much indeed. Just reading this morning that the Secretary-General of NATO, the Military Alliance, Jens Stoltenberg, saying that China is not our enemy, but it does pose security challenges. So all of that geopolitics coming up in the week ahead. Sean Whelan, our London correspondent. Many thanks.
5: Scolded by the G7 and NATO leaders who said it presents systemic challenges, China has been the focus of a united front of condemnation from the West. Its response best summed up as butt out of our affairs. Joe Biden has urged his fellow NATO leaders to stand up to China's authoritarianism and growing military might. Then, two days ago, 28 Chinese Air Force aircraft entered the Taiwan Air Defence Zone, the largest incursion to date. To put some context on what's happening, I'm joined by Yvonne Murray, our reporter in Taipei. And Yvonne, let's start with that incursion and the significance of the timing of this incursion coming as it did following on uh, the NATO and G7 meetings.
6: This is designed by by Beijing to be a dramatic display of military strength and to kind of underline the point that they are no longer going to accept being bossed around by a small group of rich nations, and uh, a demonstration that any inclusion of Taiwan in the G seven statement is utterly unacceptable to Beijing. Um, They consider it an an interference in their sovereign internal affairs. Um, That, alongside the situation in Hong Kong in Xinjiang, they consider completely out of bounds uh, for the international community and uh, they see that this uh, as you mentioned this united front that Biden has managed to bring about with Europe and and other parts of the world um, is to them uh, threatening and they have lashed out in, in a characteristically very angry fashion.
5: So the response can we take it Yvonne will be will be more of these shows of strength rather than any attempt uh, to start entering into some form of dialogue?
6: I can't see uh, China entering into any form of dialogue at the moment, at least not publicly. I mean, we, ha- we have to look at this in the context of uh, what happened previous to Biden taking office during the Trump years, um, the, China had made quite significant progress in kind of breaking that Atlantic alliance by um, bringing Europe much closer to Beijing, um, culminating in the in the China investment uh, agreement, EU investment agreement, which was agreed towards the end of Trump's term. And that was an indication that it had managed to drive a wedge between the, the, uh, Europe and the U.S., and now seeing uh, Biden turn that around and bring Europe back into the fold and present a united front against China um, is something that that uh, it's very angry about, but it's also somewhat rattled about. This is exactly what they didn't want to see, and their reaction, while very angry and very kind of ultra-nationalistic um, at the uh, you know in, in public, there is definitely disquiet in Beijing. This is not what they wanted to see, and uh, if there is any negotiation, it will definitely be quietly behind the scenes. Cold War is over, Yvonne,
5: yet are we seeing lines drawn here? Are we seeing China draw even closer to Russia?
6: Yeah, that that again is it's very interesting to see the echoes of the Cold War in this in, in these new kind of geopolitical shifts that are taking place. And um, Especially this week, seeing the the China's rocket launch uh, into space, uh, the the largest manned uh, flight into into space, and then um, uh, you know the US saying that they wouldn't be able to join uh, the International Space Station, and that uh, China instead will team up with Russia in its space race. So again, this really does seem like um, a a new uh, Cold War, and the the concern. in this region, especially over the issue of Taiwan, is that it does not turn into a hot war, uh, which of course w- would be very worrying for the whole planet.
5: And yet, Yvonne, is it a case of business is business is business? And despite these global rifts, you still have the US and China and Europe still cooperating in, in finance and trade and business. This
6: is it. And I think that this market of the, of China, which is just so enormous, is far too tempting for companies all around the world, especially companies who are struggling in the wake of the pandemic to really uh, generate business at home. They see the Chinese market as their only way out of, of, this, uh, of these doldrums. Um, plus, you see on Wall Street now, US investors lining up to invest in China's capital markets. So, yes, we have the, this kind of uh, more angry rhetoric across the globe. But behind the scenes, that, that business community is not going to be turned off the Chinese market. It's too tempting. It's too big and uh, too attractive. No gestures to come then from China. And you've reported
5: extensively on the, the Uyghur people in, in the past and, and what they're suffering. You're not likely to see any moves by China to ease back on human rights abu- abuses that are alleged against them.
6: Yeah, absolutely not and I think that's really key to understand about this week as well. It's almost like the more the international community pushes China on these issues, um especially on human rights, in in, um, in the Xinjiang region, the more they seem to dig uh, their heels in. Um, and uh, turning to the other issue of Hong Kong, only yesterday we saw a raid on um, the Apple Daily newspaper offices really driving home this point that China will continue its aggressive policies to bring Hong Kong into line with Beijing and it just doesn't care what the international community says. That's the new reality and I think the problem with what's happened with the G7 this week is that they haven't quite come up with a pl- Plan to deal with this um, aggressive, uh, you know, policy from from Beijing, and it, which it does not seem to be backing down on. For now, Yvonne Murray in Taipei. Thank you.
7: Last night, the doyle passed a Sinn Fein motion calling for 100% redress for those whose homes are affected by mica, the mineral which causes defective blocks has led to homes crumbling before their owners' eyes. Those houses now require significant repair or need to be demolished and rebuilt entirely. During last night's debate, Housing Minister Darrow O'Brien told TDs that the government is committed to making changes to the MICA redress scheme. However, uh, such changes, he warned, will add to what is already an expensive scheme. Tommy Meskell of our political staff was watching last night's debate and brings us this report.
8: What do we want? 100%. When do we want it? No.
1: Thousands of people from Donegal, Mayo, and Sligo uh, have come here to the centre of power today and have made their position very clear.
8: When do we want it? No.
9: no. Sinn Féin's Padraig McLaughlin opened the debate in the Dáil yesterday evening. His party tabling a motion, calling for 100% redress for those whose homes are crumbling due to mica. Earlier that day, thousands had arrived outside the Convention Centre Dublin, echoing that
1: call. The people that we represent did nothing wrong. They were victims of an era of light-touch regulation, self-regulation, no regulation during the Celtic Tiger. His party and constituency
9: colleague, Piers Starty, shared the stories of his constituents, among them the story of an 11-year-old girl who told him yesterday that she had written to the Taoiseach and the Minister for Housing. She's an excellent writer. She expressed the reality that she and her family face eloquently and succinctly. In an extract in that letter, she said, our house is affected by mica. In my bedroom, we had to move my bed because the plaster was falling off my wall and onto my pillows. It's so sad that the house we're living in is crumbling. It's so
10: unfair that the government is doing nothing.
9: But the Minister for Housing, Daryl O'Brien, told Piers Daugherty that the government is committed to making changes to the MICA redress scheme.
11: Crumbling walls have turned bright dreams into darkness. MICA is a blight in these communities that has devastated lives. I want a scheme that works uh, for those ordinary homeowners by providing a
9: very clear pathway out of this scourge. And so government established a working group involving his department, the MICA Action Group, representatives from Mayo and Donegal, including local authority representatives. They'll seek to identify and address issues with the current scheme, and will produce a report for the Minister by the end of next month.
11: We all know that there is a a very significant cost to the Exchequer, and that is just a fact. And a fact that is there and changes to the scheme, and I believe changes are needed to the scheme. will have the effect of increasing that cost. And we do need to try to quantify that like what was done when the scheme was put in place last January.
8: Why should the people who see their homes crumbling in front of them, what they lived for, what they worked for, what they managed and raised the family. I met grannies today and
9: grandchildren, some of the grannies and grandparents couldn't come. They shouldn't have to come if this was a caring government. Tipperary's Matty McGrath of the Rural Independence believes that it was wrong that families felt they had to protest in Dublin.
8: I met people from the top of Donegal today, like four and five hours travelling here to have to bring the case to Dublin. And they livened up Dublin. It's been dead for long enough with the COVID lockdown. And they brought a spirit of energy and enthusiasm. All they want is to live in their houses, live out their days, pass
9: them on to their families, but no. While the Dole passed Sinn Féin's 100% redress motion last night, government won't be obliged to implement us Instead, it will implement Darrell O'Brien's working group proposal. Labour's Duncan Smith told the Dole that the Micah saga was, yes, another face of the housing crisis with construction defects affecting many people
12: in the biggest purchase you'll ever make in your life. One that is not only the biggest financial commitment, but one that has such an emotional investment, that you're buying your home, the place where you're going to live, where you may raise a family, where you'll create your memories, where you'll grow old in. That that you've invested in that, and the state has let you down because it has not had a robust enough regulatory system in place for the standards of building equipment. So the state will have to step in. And I know that, can hurt some, you know, but that is the reality. That is the reality.
7: That is the reality. That's Labour's Duncan Smith ending that report by Tommy Meskell. In a moment, we'll speak with our political correspondent, Paul Cunningham, about what happens next. But first, here's Housing Minister Dara O'Brien on primetime last night, talking about the potential cost of the redress scheme.
11: The, the government are committed and have already said that there's a cost to the exchequer of around a billion euro. We expect it to be substantially more than that. So the changes that we make, okay. and we, we will be obviously be paying for, the people in Donegal and the mayor are taxpayers too. They deserve yes. fairness, they uh, deserve And that's actually what I wanted to, to ask you about, is, yeah.
0: is the scale and the cost of all of this. Mm-hmm. And, and the are talking today about over one billion yes. euro. Um, government sources told prime time last year that it could be up to 2.5 billion euro. And that was only for the houses identified yeah. initially. I think there's yeah. more houses now. Now, do you see it going as high as 2.5 billion or higher?
11: It potentially could. It could be higher than 1.5 uh, 2, billion. 2.5? I'm not, I'm not sure where it could go that high, but if you look at what was originally the expert panel, they reckon that probably about 5,000 homes. Evidence that I have initially is that it will be more than that.
0: How many more do you know?
11: I don't know yet, but it could be, it could be substantially more than
7: that. That's Housing Minister Dara O'Brien speaking to Sarah McInerney on primetime last night. Let's talk now to our political correspondent, Paul Cunningham. Um, Paul, the government didn't oppose that Sinn Féin motion last night calling for 100% redress for homeowners affected by MICA. Uh, that motion was passed in the Dáil, but that's not really uh, necessarily a promise that those homeowners will get everything they're looking for, is it?
13: Yeah, that's right, Justin. I mean, the Taoiseach Mihol Martin was asked repeatedly in the Dáil by the Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald if his government would back that 100% redress demand. And he didn't answer it directly. I mean, what he did say is that what happened to the people affected was scandalous, appalling and devastating. He did say the government would do everything it can to assist them. And he also did say that the old scheme would be expanded because it simply wasn't doing enough and that it would cover additional things like upfront costs for hiring engineers. And in that interview with Darrell O'Brien, he said, for example, that rent would be sorted for people who had to leave their homes while being repaired or being rebuilt. But you didn't get a clear answer or a clear commitment. Commitment on that issue of 100% redress and I think to a certain extent such a commitment was probably seen as too wide as too sweeping and you got a flavour of that from Minister O'Brien where the number of, and later on in that interview, the number of homes, he said, um, could jump from 5,000 homes affected to 10,000. Um, as you heard in the clip, the bill had jumped, the Doyle had been told by Micheál Martin, the bill could be around in excess of 1 billion. By prime time, 12 hours later, it had jumped to 1.5 billion and possibly more. So there was a sense by the government that this could um, spiral out of control. They need to be very clear about what they're signing up to. And so on that basis, they were stopping sh- or short of the 100% redress demand.
7: And we saw, Paul, yesterday that the levels of of anger, the levels of mobilisation of those people who gathered yesterday uh, to protest about MICA in their homes. And that no doubt puts pressure then on government TDs in in Donegal and down the, the West Coast, doesn't it?
13: Absolutely. I mean, I think for many of those people who came to Dublin yesterday, there was a sense that they'd been campaigning on their own. And there was a huge sense of collective yesterday on the streets of Dublin that finally something was happening and they weren't going to take it anymore. But the campaigners who were representing them were also very clear that number one, things happen to have to happen very quickly. And number two, they really need to get into the, mushy, into the detail of it. Now, the government said that they've got their working party and it's going to report back by the end of July. And so, in the next six weeks or so they're going to determine what qualifies uh, and will be squared off uh, and what isn't for example and if an engineer is certifying your house that it is damaged by mica and um, that looks to be in you shouldn't have to pay for the upfront cost for that but what about holiday homes what about farm buildings and in all of this context it is politically perilous I mean Sinn Féin has made um, a clear issue of this and someone like Fianna Fáil's Agriculture Minister Charlie mcconnell with the Donegal TD whose base is in the north of the county will only be too acutely aware of that I think one other thing to watch which is slightly um, away from payments made directly to the uh, people affected, is also who's going to pay for this. And I thought it was noteworthy that the Taoiseach Michael Martin said the state can't forever be held accountable alone, and he wants the Attorney General to look at the possibility of block suppliers or designers or insurance companies because he has an issue of what he called people walking off the pitch. So that's another dimension to it, Justin.
7: Okay, now uh, elsewhere, Paul, De Finagle got underway yesterday, and uh, the Tánaiste, in his opening remarks, gave a very pro-United Ireland address online, um, but also highlighting the difficulties around reunification.
13: Yeah, I mean, I suppose Leo Varadkar would be keen to suggest, and it was contained somewhere in the speech, that this isn't something new. I think he said that um, several years ago um, he had been talking about how the tectonic plates were shifting in Northern Ireland, and his party had to respond. But I mean, still, last night it was a strong statement for him to say that he believes in the unification of the Ireland and of Ireland, and uh, he believes that it can happen in his lifetime. He went on to criticise Sinn Féin for its vision of how unity can be achieved, and he outlined some of the measures that Finucane could do um, to achieve that, and real practical stuff like he felt, that such as Fine Gael setting up a branch in Northern Ireland for the first time, not to contest elections, but to um, build bridges with um, like-minded people. But he's also clear to say that until um, the, the modalities or the mechanisms by which you could achieve uh, a united Ireland were made clear that it would be too early for a border poll, that that would be the wrong thing to do. So while on the one hand he was advocating the unification of the Ireland, uh, of Ireland and he was not saying that this was something which was going to happen in the short term.
7: And what about the timing of all this, Paul? Because, you know, there's uncertainty at the moment around the executive in Northern Ireland. There are growing tensions in loyalist areas. The marching season is is coming up very soon. Uh, and then, of course, you had a weekend poll also showing Fine Gael losing ground to Sinn Féin. Um, so the timing is interesting, isn't it?
13: Yeah, I mean, if you take the first part, um, given there's so much sort of upheaval in Northern Ireland, in political terms, I think, and the Thonisher would suggest that's the right time for uh, the party to be talking about these difficult issues. So, for example, when it came to the Northern Ireland Protocol, he was saying that um, there shouldn't be any unilateral actions by London or Dublin. Instead, they should try and seek practical solutions within existing agreements. So, I mean, that would be one thing. But as you said, there is a by-election coming around the corner and there is an issue of, an electoral um, battle taking place in Finnegale's view, and um, this is a battle between uh, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin and on that basis it would make sense for um, Fine Gael to be articulating how it sees things so yeah very interesting indeed about how these two political parties are positioning themselves
7: And you mentioned that by-election there Paul if you live in uh, Dublin Bay South you can expect to be showered with attention no doubt uh, over the next couple of weeks uh, because there is a date for that by-election
13: yeah, the, the writ is going to be moved in the Dáil today by um, uh, Dar O'Brien. He's not just the housing minister, he's also the local government minister. Um, and July 8th is the day, a Thursday for um, polling. It'll be interesting to see um, how they're going to conduct um, this um, ballot in the context of COVID. Is it going to take place over two days or how is it going to be done? But I mean, effectively, the by-election campaign has already been underway for the past couple of weeks. So it didn't come as any surprise to either the candidates themselves were are already in the field or the voters of Dublin Bay.
7: indeed paul thank you very much indeed for that paul cunningham our political correspondent there
2: well it was a shocking scene an elite footballer in a vital match collapsing and not moving for several minutes in a copenhagen stadium on saturday afternoon christian Eriksson's team doctor said that the danish footballer suffered a cardiac arrest that and i quote he was gone but we got him back He is thankfully recovering in hospital. Unfortunately, others haven't been so lucky down the years. Young, fit, healthy people dying suddenly either on a football pitch or in some sporting arena or elsewhere. The most high-profile case here was probably the Tyrone GAA captain Cormac McAnallen in 2004, who died in his sleep at the age of just 26. Two years later, Gregory Leonard's 29-year-old son Francis collapsed and died on the pitch while playing for Fingless GAA team Aaron's Isle. Francis
14: was a very keen sports person. He was very fit, playing senior football, and he had a great interest in, in his level of fitness. He was awarded his master's degree in November 2006. And a few days later, while playing football for Aaron's Isle, died on the pitch. The opposition goalkeeper was a fully qualified physiotherapist. And another member performed CPR on Francis Uh, until the the ambulance arrived we had no defibrillator and um, by the time I suppose the ambulance came he, he could not be resuscitated we unfortunately were in London at the time and we heard the news and came home and arrived in Dublin that night and went out to Blanchardstown and he was in the morgue his manager was waiting there at midnight Fergie Brown and he helped us Francis died on the pitch that day. But he got the best attention and all available care and nothing else could have saved him except perhaps to have a defibrillator handy.
8: What lesson would you like people in general to take from the scenes they saw on Saturday and the very tragic scenarios that have happened to people like your son?
14: It's the CPR courses, it's the AED training and uh, we, we need more cardiologists they are so dedicated these men and women to saving young fit lives you could see what happened to christine his life was saved by the careful thoughtful experts who were there to help him it was just wonderful to hear his recovery knowing something can be done
2: Well our thanks to Gregory for talking to us remembering his son Francis who died 15 years ago. Gregory's a member of the support group Cardiac Risk in the Young and he was talking there to our reporter Fekra Okiana. Well Dr Catherine Magorion is a consultant cardiologist at the Matter Hospital in Dublin and she's on the line now. Dr Magorion thanks for taking our call Um, shocking scenes as I say in Copenhagen people just absolutely devastated witnessing what was taking place on the pitch. How common is the sudden death of young healthy people here.
12: Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, We know in Ireland that there are about 5,000 cardiac arrest events per year. We performed an audit back in 2005, 2007, and we found that in the age group 14 to 35, there were 70, about 70 sudden cardiac arrests per year. I would say that about five of those were seen to occur during sports or training. So the majority of these events, although what we saw was absolutely shocking on Saturday night. The uh, Most of these events do not occur in such public or during sporting activities, um, but still, you know, seeing such a devastating and shocking event, as Gregory tells us, really reminds us to put in place things like our defibrillators in our clubs to look after our heart health
2: and in terms of the causes of uh, what took place on Saturday or indeed in, in the other cases that we hear about, is there some underlying weakness in the structure of, of a person's heart that they may be completely unaware of?
12: Oh, there can be. So, you know, we think about some of these high-profile events that we've seen Christian Erikson on Saturday, uh, people like Fabrice Muamba, Mark Uh We, You know, in these events, we always look very closely to see What's the underlying cause? And it can be a, car- a, a predisposition towards a cardiac arrhythmia, such as a cardiac electrical condition, or sometimes it can be a muscle condition, an arrhythmogenic or a, a, an overgrown heart or an arrhythmic heart. Um, so we look very carefully, and I suppose, you know, it's early days for somebody like Christian Erikson. You know, his cardiologist would be looking into all of this for him.
2: And you 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 say obviously that you don't have to be an athlete for it to happen, and indeed you say most people are not. But does sport of any kind, particularly high-intense sport, does that expose um, the the damaged heart if it's there?
12: Yeah, you know we think sport is such a positive in our community, and it is, and it you know provides so much physical health, heart health, mental health. Uh, the challenge is when people have a rare predisposing condition. It may be that high intensity or competitive sport isn't the right choice for them at that time, until they have, you know, seen and discussed it with their cardiologist and have all their sort of their treatments in place. Um, the challenge, of course, is knowing whether or not you know you need to have this sort of high intensity, uh, highly specialised cardiology input. Um, and for people, you know, I, you know, I suppose my message would be the community prevention is so important, the CPR, the having the defibrillator is so important. However, if you have a family history of a very sudden, unexpected cardiac arrest in a family member, or if yourself have been having unexplained collapses, then consulting with your primary care physician or consulting with one of the screening centres, such as the Family Heart Screening Clinic, uh, the CRI Centre, you know, the Irish Heart Foundation, Uh, would
2: be a very appropriate thing to do. Yeah, because when high-profile events like what happened on Saturday take place, you you do hear calls for uh, mass screening for those most at risk, particularly those who play sport. There is always that link in people's minds between the two. Is a mass screening program like that feasible?
12: Uh, feasible is a tough question you know some countries have implemented it most famously Italy and then more recently Israel as well and they did see a really impressive reduction in cardiac arrest sudden cardiac death events uh, in athletes Um the challenge in Ireland you know we are supposed to been left a lot to the private sector and they've done an, a good job um, but there's definitely a debate to be had about who should be screened when should we screen how should we do that it's it's a complex topic, but, you know, maybe this, again, is the the wake-up call that we should start to look at that.
2: But certainly sports grounds, you would advise to have the defibrillator there in place?
12: You know, Irish sports grounds have taken this on. Individual clubs have taken this on. You know, I have to give uh, acknowledgement to, you know, all our, our local clubs, our community first responders. We've seen a huge change in... You know, we have this audit that's come through NUIG, the Ocar Registry, and they have noticed a huge change in the amount of bystander CPR AED usage uh, that's occurred out in our communities. So, I mean, Irish communities are really taking. This oh,
2: that, that that is great to hear. Absolutely, CPR courses, first aid courses, uh, very vital indeed. Thank you very much, Catherine McGarry and Dr. Catherine McGarry and Consultant Cardiologist at the Matter.
15: Homophobic graffiti painted on a building close to Pantybar in Dublin city centre on Sunday night has been removed. Pantybar owner Rory O'Neill, also known as Pantybliss, posted an image of the graffiti on Twitter on Monday. It showed a highly derogatory slur. Painted on the wall of a nearby building on Strand Street Great and an arrow pointing in the direction of the well-known Capel Street Gay Bar. And it comes just days after pride flags raised in Waterford City were cut down twice in one week at the Waterford City and County Council buildings. Lisa Connell is Managing Editor of Gay Community News. Good morning, Lisa. Are you surprised by what happened?
16: Good morning. Um sadly uh not uh not so surprised um we in the lgbtq plus community know this kind of um discrimination all too well and it's a a very sad visual reminder um that there's still a lot of homophobia and transphobia in our in our society
15: what effect does graffiti like this have on the people it's directed at
16: well, it's it's a tactic of, of uh, you know, it attempts to isolate people and cause fear and, and, you know, and really tells people that they're not equal members of the society um, and really is, is a visible representation of, of the, the kind of prejudice and hatred that still exists.
15: The graffiti has been removed and there has been an outpouring of support for Panty and the Bar on social media. In your view, what can be done to make sure this doesn't happen again?
16: Yeah, I mean, there's a range of things um, going from, you know, really good, proper LGBTQ plus education and awareness. It's at the school's level. But beyond that, obviously, um, finally implementing uh, hate hate crime legislation in Ireland. We, we're outliers. We still don't have that protection. Um, so, so getting that across the line would be a very key um, because the problem is people don't even, you know, the, the incidence of reporting hate speech and hate crime are very low because i think people have an understanding that it's it's not fully recognized and also then there are no if you are someone who does that there's no repercussion for you in doing it you know
15: has support have efforts at support and awareness been damaged in some way by the inability to have pride properly this year like last year with big crowds
16: yeah, I mean, I think that obviously the impact uh, for, of the pandemic on all minority communities has been, uh, you know, has been ex- extensive. And Pride is such an important part of the to- of the year for LGBTQ plus folk, and it's an important time for for people to come out and and be with each other, but also to there's that strength and solidarity in the numbers and I think yes for certainly for newer members of the community or younger members of the community that is that is something that's lacking Um, but you know community organizations and and organizers and, and members are really trying hard to to still be there for for the people that need them.
15: Lisa thanks for talking to us this morning that's Lisa Connell managing editor of Gay Community News.
5: While it's no surprise that the aviation sector has suffered throughout the pandemic the news that Stobart Air had collapsed is another major blow. Stobart operated as a regional provider to Aer Lingus and 12 routes have been cancelled as a result now Aer Lingus has decided to operate 5 of the affected routes itself for now, however the public service obligation routes of Dublin Donegal and Dublin Kerry have yet to be addressed. We will talk shortly to Sinn Féin Transport Spokesperson Darren O'Rourke but first Amy Riada has been looking into the issue. She has this report from Kerry.
8: Well, I was booked on a flight to leave here at uh, 7.30 Wednesday morning. That is not going to occur.
5: Philip
17: King is a musician and creator of Other Voices Music Festival. He's living 12 kilometres outside of Dingle in West Kerry. He's used to being in Dublin before 10am, thanks to the Kerry to Dublin flight, but now will be forced to drive the 350 kilometres trip before going about his day's work.
8: Instead of having, or usually is a 40-minute flight if the wind is in the right direction, I am now talking about really four hours, maybe a little bit more. And that's very, very significant, I have to say.
17: Philip is one of thousands of customers who will be affected by Stobart Air's decision, according to John Mulhern, who is CEO of Kerry International Airport. He says that the loss of that market could be detrimental to the airport especially now that the majority of continental flights from Kerry have been grounded as a result of the pandemic.
18: The Kerry-Dublin route, which is two return flights a day, almost 60,000 passengers used that in 2019. We have routes into the UK, Alicante and Faro, Germany, none of which are flying now other than Luton. And the PSO was probably our most major route and our biggest contributor. So its reinstatement is absolutely essential to the recovery of Kerry Airport.
17: The challenge for John now is to source another airline, a job that he says could be relatively easy if the government could speed up the application process.
18: I've had phone calls from a airline who right now is ready to take over the route. They have 88-seater jets, and they will take their jets and put them in place Tomorrow, if they get to go ahead.
17: Can you name them yet?
18: I can't. I've been in discussion with them for a few months because they are keen to set up some new routes out of Kerry. And the PSO was not on their radar, but they are very keen to look at supporting. They wrote to me on Saturday and said if the government could see a way to doing it, they would step in tomorrow and recover the PSO route from Kerry to Dublin.
17: In the meantime, the effect of Stobartier's cessation will be felt across many sectors. For those in the hospitality industry, Bernadette Randall says that this is another hurdle in the race to get back to normal after several lockdowns. Bernadette is chairperson of the Irish Hotels Federation branch in Kerry and her family has two hotels in the county.
2: This is just like another blow. I know we've just come out of the last one. I'll tell you why it's very important. So one of the first reasons it's called interlining. It's where a guest in America can book their flight right through into Dublin and into Kerry without picking up their luggage. The second one is medical. Believe it or not, some parts of Kerry there are a six-hour drive to Dublin and if people can get a flight in foreign go to Dublin and come back down home again, especially as most of its treatment, you know, that's a great load off their mind. So because they don't have a six-hour drive to Dublin.
17: The Kerry Tourism Industry Federation says the full scale of this closure might not be felt until the country fully reopens, but it's expected to have severe consequences on the southwest, especially as it follows the closure of the Aer Lingus Base in Shannon, according to Pat O'Leary who is chairman.
1: And initially, the business community would be affected because it was, it was a, very, a very convenient commuter flight, particularly nowadays with a lot of people working from home and going to office maybe once per week or once per month. The second impact, of course, would be felt not immediately because obviously we, we do not have any international tourists at this time. Irish tourists come by car, but obviously when things open up and people start flying now into Dublin, they will need access to the West Coast, and obviously we want, we want to attract people to carry And there's a disincentive now, if they cannot fly, how do they get to us?
17: For regular service user Philip King, it's not just the practicality of the 7.30am flight, but that sense of connectivity that goes with it, after having spent a year abiding by COVID-19
8: restrictions. It also ameliorates that sense of isolation that was sort of underlined by the COVID piece, That now getting back to be able to be connected one with the other, there's something hugely worrying and depressing about seeing this latest development that Kerry Airport will no longer be able to connect us in that way.
5: That's Philip King ending that report by Amy Nerea. Let's talk some more now with Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin spokesperson on transport. Good morning, Darren O'Rourke good morning now it's been said time and again aviation is an industry hammered by the impact of covid19 what do you want to see this week from the department of transport particularly in relation now to those pso's those public service obligation routes to donegal and to kerry
19: well, well i think that package uh, captured it very well in terms of the importance of these services uh, in terms of strategic connectivity in terms of tourism, hospitality and, and industry and commerce more generally, but also in the in terms of the the day to day lives of, of people in the in the regions and, and the practicalities of that. So so we need absolute clarity from from government that those routes will be reinstated as quickly as is possible i think it's clear from commentary over the weekend and included in in, in that package that there are uh, potential options there and the government haven't been uh, aggressive in their pursuit of them and and that's a you know a feature of the government's response in aviation in, in general so we want the the Government to give those commitments to show that they're being proactive in their response to this. Have um, you are there indications
5: uh, they haven't been aggressive in their pursuit of alternatives?
19: Well, I, I think a number of of uh, airline CEOs over the weekend were on RT radio and indicated as much that there were public statements made, but but nobody picked up the phone, nobody picked up the phone to. Uh, to To alternative providers um, that might have stepped in before this uh, at this stage and I think you know t- to name Michael O'Leary as as one of those um, I think you know it's been you know widely uh, uh, raised as an issue in terms of the response of this government in particular I think there has been criticism of, of Minister Eamon Ryan in relation to this and and I have to say, as opposition spokesperson, that has been a feature of the the government's response in relation to to aviation. It has been hands off. um, It hasn't been proactive. They've never got out ahead of this. COVID, of course, is a very significant challenge and aviation is affected uh, internationally. But this government, in my opinion, has contributed to to, to the difficulties in, in, in the Irish context because they have failed to uh, pr- provide, you know and I think there is an argument and it has been made by, by industry that there's an alignment here of public health priorities and uh, providing public confidence in aviation and the government here have failed uh, in both regards. Can,
5: can I pull you back just a moment to, to the, regional, the regional connectivity issue that we started out on uh, and I'm just wondering, there seems to be a- A lot of optimism, both coming from Simon Coveney yesterday, a a statement I have from the Department of Transport, that they will be able to get other operators to step in. Uh, Kerry Airport's John Mulhern uh, saying as well he was positive. What nobody said yet uh, was how much that's going to cost. We already uh, put something of the order of seven million in taxpayers' money into these PSO routes. How much is too much?
19: Yeah, well, well, I think um, th- th- that question needs to be answered in the context of um, government priority, and I think there is a shared objective across the political landscape to to ensure uh, balanced regional development. So we're, we're talking about, and we've heard, you know, Cork, Shannon, Kerry, uh, Donegal, Ireland West, all affected by by the the, the these uh, cuts in in aviation and the impact of of, of COVID nineteen. So. So we need to to ensure that that balance is is maintained uh, post COVID. Um, and the PSOs uh, are in place for a reason um, to ensure that that uh, balanced strategic connectivity is maintained. We, we've heard at the transport committee from a range of stakeholders yeah. in the sector. They believe that many of the commercial flights that were in and out of, of Shannon and Cork, for example, will be commercially viable post-COVID. Um, so th- so that's something that, that, that is hopeful and, and positive. But what we need to do is to ensure that the sector can survive and recover beca- uh, f- from COVID. Okay. And that will require... Um, direct uh, action from government and, and, we and uh, have a, a proactive uh, response yeah,
5: we have the digital passport and the opening up of travel to european destinations from the 19th of july but on the the delta variant and reports now of uh, perhaps some some change or increase in restrictions coming from the the department of health in relation to travel from the uk will you support this
19: yeah, well, I, I think there, there, there an opportunity is is presented there. Uh, the government, there seem to be some indications that there will be uh, some extension of the period of of quarantine at home. I think everybody is concerned about the Delta variant, and I think it's entirely appropriate that it's been monitored and assessed. I think also we're in a very different place than than we were. At the back end of last year or the start of this year, okay. in in the sense that we have so so a government changes va- would rollout. have Sinn
5: Fein support.
19: But I I think there's a missed opportunity actually, and, I, and I'm going to echo the. Call I just wanted the to just to be clear
5: on that question because I I have to go. But they, if they make changes on travel between the UK and Ireland, will it have Sinn Fein support?
19: It it will have Sinn Féin support if it it comes from public health, but I would also call on government to introduce a pilot test for antigen testing, which I think is a perfect opportunity to do it now. It would be risk-free. It would provide evidence uh, that would possibly facilitate a greater reopening of of aviation in the months ahead, because the PCR test is prohibitively expensive.
5: Thank you very much, Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin spokesperson on transport. Next to a gentle warning from wildlife experts that
2: small wild animals should be left in their natural environments. It follows reports that a young fawn was brought to a Dublin Garda station last week after being found in long grass in the Wicklow Mountains. We can talk now to the campaigns officer with the Irish Wildlife Trust, Porrick Fogarty. Porrick, thanks for taking our call this morning. Um, And the Garda then, this little fawn was transferred to the Wildlife Rehabilitation Hospital in County Meath. Now, why was it wrong for the person to bring it to the Garda station in the first place?
10: Yes, so we get a lot of calls, particularly around this time of year, of baby animals uh, being abandoned. And I suppose the message is that the majority of the time, the baby animals are not abandoned. So, when birds come out of their nests for the first time, often they can't fly very well. Um, in this instance, fawns, so baby deer, um, are left alone in long grass for quite a long time while the mothers uh, head off to feed. And in the autumn time, we get reports about seals, because uh, mother seals will have their babies on the beach, and then they might head off for hours uh, feeding while the, beach is alone, or while the seal is alone on the beach. So, I mean, the majority of the time, the the animals are not abandoned and so they're just best left alone
2: and I'm going to make people cry when I say this because once they've been handled by humans, they can't be returned to their mothers. Is that the case?
10: Uh, it, for, the, for the mammals, uh, the deer, when they're born, they are imprinted with a scent with the mother uh, so that the mother will recognise the uh, the baby when she returns or can find it. Uh, seals as well, when they live in very large colonies, uh, they will imprint with the scent. And so if a human has handled the baby, um, that scent basically has been disrupted and the mother may not recognise the, uh, the infant when it returns
2: Yeah, it's, it's hard though isn't it people see, see these animals and they think they're abandoned, they're trying to do the right thing but they have to resist
10: Absolutely, yeah. Now there are cases where animals are actually injured and they do need uh, uh, intervention and there's an excellent website that we always refer people to. It's called irishwildlifematters.ie and the details are on our website and there are vets around the country that will take in wild animals. But really the first question you need to ask yourself is, is the animal injured? Is it obviously injured or obviously in distress? And in that case then get in touch with an expert.
2: And is it possible, Porik, to estimate what the impact is on a young animal like that, taken away from its mother at that age?
10: Well, uh, it's not really. Now, the the, the doctors at the uh, the rehabilitation hospital in Alvin are very good, but uh, particularly for the... Smaller animals like birds, for instance, uh, the, the the rehabilitation successes raises is not great. A lot of the animals uh, don't go on to survive. Um, so that is why nature is always best in the first instance.
2: Yeah, and does it happen often? Do you see many cases of this?
10: Uh, we don't keep figures on it, but it does happen regularly. Uh, we start getting calls around March when birds uh, are hatching out of out of eggs and nests, and then June, of course, is when the um, the deer starts giving birth, and then the autumn time is when the grey seals uh, are born. So it does it does happen a lot. And as you say, people are coming into contact with these things, and obviously the reaction is uh, is one of concern, so they want to do something. Unfortunately, a lot of them are getting in touch with the Irish Wildlife Trust and other organisations before they do anything so okay. a large amount of the time people are doing the right thing well, uh, but good. it's just a so good to every so often to reinforce the message
2: Exactly. Porrick, thank you very much Porrick Fogarty of the Irish Wildlife Trust
0: You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland